Terrence C. Gannon, and this is the Not There Yet podcast, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Rosetta Stone, an ancient idea that is more relevant than ever. The metaphorical Rosetta Stone is better known than the real Rosetta Stone, In any explanation of how one critical document deciphers and unlocks the meaning of all others, that document instantly becomes the Rosetta Stone of particle physics, or computer code, or Kaizen, or astronomy, or golf. With the irreplaceable information the metaphorical Rosetta Stone provides, that which we seek to understand is enlightened and flourishes in our imagination. It's the single match struck in the Stygian void, The light it casts instantly defines the dimensions and nature of our new world. The Rosetta Stone of the Rosetta Stone is that its primary significance is as an aid to translation more than conveying specific historical facts. Created over 2,000 years ago, it is a plain black stone on which is found parts of the Decree of Memphis. The Decree, a modest document attributed to King Ptolemy V of Egypt, is inscribed in three languages— first in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, then in Demotic script, an early written language of the Nile Delta, and finally in ancient Greek. With the correlation of these languages in one place and at one time over a known text, the Rosetta Stone became the seminal source document for all other translations, a grand cryptographic key to an entire age and lost world. In a very literal sense, it unlocked many of the mysteries of ancient civilizations and all the wonder they held. In one stroke, the mysterious and tantalizing hieroglyphics of ancient Egypt became readable text. This new, rich source of information put our modern world into an entirely new context. The world of the ancients became one with ours. Time travel by another name. As romanticized as the story of the Rosetta Stone has become, however, the journey from its origin, likely Sais in Egypt, to its current location is more prosaic. Soldiers from Napoleon's Imperial Army rediscovered the Rosetta Stone near Rashid, Egypt in 1799. As a result of some forgotten tribulation in some other time when knowledge was reviled instead of revered, it had been broken into pieces and eventually recycled into lowly building material, Only one fragment was ever found. Through circumstances which are not clear, this one remaining fragment was then transferred from French to British possession in 1802, subsequently transported to London, and has been on nearly continuous display at the British Museum since then. It is ironic that in the more enlightened modern age, the Rosetta Stone directly helped enable all requests to return the artifact to its home in Egypt have been refused. It's still difficult to believe that on the occasion of my parents' 25th wedding anniversary in 1978, they extended an open-ended invitation to me and my siblings to join them on their trip from Canada to their first home in England. Even harder to believe that at the age of just 17, they agreed to my two-week extension to the trip and a three-week Eurail pass offering unlimited train travel all over Europe by myself. As I waved to them from the deck of the Channel Ferry, 
that would take me to France, and Ma and Pa stood on the dock bravely waving back, it still seemed like a pretty good idea. When I got to France and asked, in English of course, for a recommendation as to where I could get something to eat, I realized this was one of my earliest, oh crap, what have I done moments. My question was greeted by a vacant, pitiful stare, which I'm sure didn't have much to do with not being able to speak English. Rather, it was my not even trying to speak French. It's not that I don't know what you're saying, punk, but you're going to have to try a lot harder than that, is what I imagine them thinking. In French, of course. This jarring moment was followed by the feeling of being completely and utterly alone as a result of being unable to communicate. Food, shelter, and transport were there. Right there. I simply had no means of asking for them. It sounds funny now. Back then, it was abject terror. I survived. I eventually found those kind enough to help me and see that I got fed, bundled on the train to Paris. I finally got the hang of the solo traveling routine and found so long as you least tried to speak the local language, it was always possible to find a kind soul to help. Indeed, even back then, there were many countries where their standard for English was much higher than back home. In particular, I remember the Dutch speaking the most beautifully crafted English I had ever heard, finished with a light and beautiful accent. Whenever I hear that accent today, I am taken back to what eventually became the happy days of my European adventure of 1978. I learned to love the rhythms and sounds of the languages I heard. I also learned that they do not crisply change when you cross a border. They flow smoothly and gently from one language through highly localized dialects and colloquialisms and into the next language. They became a soothing background music for my travels. However, I also remember, after nearly three weeks, getting back on the ferry and eventually winding up in a taxi on the rainy streets of a London night. In particular, I remember the immense relief of once again being able to understand what was being said to me and that I was able to make myself understood. I remember the joy of being able to ask for walking directions from the taxi driver and to be answered in that delightful dialect of English spoken by those born within the sound of bow bells. It was effortless, and it all made sense. My European trip taught me I also loved my own language, along with all its variations and all the subtlety and nuance I was able to convey through my native tongue. I still marvel at my parents' wisdom and courage for allowing me to toss myself into this escapade. It must have had quite an impact. After all, I'm still writing about it nearly 40 years later, and its attendant lessons are as valid today as they were back then. My Rosetta Stone, my means of understanding and being understood, had been taken away for a time, and it was only in its absence did I understand how important it was. In the mid-80s, as my career lurched into first gear, I briefly worked for some vaguely nefarious characters working on the periphery of the Vancouver financial community. At that time, the Vancouver Stock Exchange was still primarily the haunt of gold-mining shysters, timber baron aspirants, and penny stock hucksters. The guys for which I was working had picked up the scent of money starting to drift up from Silicon Valley. They were pretty clueless as they tried to adapt their skills to this new opportunity, but at least they knew what they didn't know. This is where I came in. I was just slightly less clueless than they were. I was a subject matter expert, 
of a sort, while at least I knew the subject mattered. The coutured and coiffed wheeler dealers figured that sending me to Silicon Valley to vet their prospects was a good idea. My only reaction at the time was I was so broke I had to ask for a cash advance to cover cab fare and hotel rooms. My knowledge was all based on autodidact osmosis long before tech mattered much. I had picked up the computer science bug in high school long before it was cool. To put this in context, Bill Gates was not long out of New Mexico, and Zuckerberg would have been a babe in arms, no doubt wearing his first pint-sized hoodie, but maybe not yet contemplating global domination. Guys, particularly husky ones, who were into computer science didn't get the girls back then. They got their card decks knocked out of their hands in the stairwell and saw their precious, carefully ordered lines of code sail into the air and randomly flutter back to earth like crazed kamikaze pigeons. The things I thought were cool, basic interpreters and diskette drives and 16K RAM chips, were just abstract gibberish to everybody else. Clearly the ravings of a lunatic. When you were asked what you intended to do after high school and computer science was the answer, the asker's eyes quickly went cloudy from the inside, accompanied by an entirely insincere, that's nice, as their voice trailed off. I think I would have gotten a better reaction if I announced I wanted to run a slaughterhouse or be a prison guard. At least they knew what those things were. Being into computers back then meant accepting the fact your interest was fundamentally misunderstood by what seemed like everybody. Then came the trip to Silicon Valley. I had only been there for a few hours when I realized the burble of language I heard on the street was all familiar to me. Instead of being isolated by a lack of understanding of the local language, I felt embraced by a complete understanding of what was being said. It was as if I had arrived in Babylon and magically knew the language. It was the polar opposite of my European trip years before. Instead of feeling isolated, I strangely felt like I was finally home. The investment prospects I was sent to evaluate all turned out to be duds for the most part. There was one, a company called Headdress, who had this idea which would allow clients of hair salons to visualize their new hairdo before they actually got it done. For the mid-80s, it was pretty clever. The application even took into account letting the hair grow on screen so the client could see how the do would look in the weeks between redos. The folks writing this software were cool. After all, we spoke the same language. No Rosetta Stone required. I got along well with them, and I told them I loved what they were doing. When I got back to my actual home of Vancouver and reported back to the wannabe Silicon Valley high rollers, they just laughed. Who would buy such a thing? And what a fool I was to recommend these video game clowns over the other prospects which they thought were much better. The entire business relationship died right there. To the guys at Headdress, if you're still around, I hope you did well. You certainly deserve to because you were years ahead of your time. Me? I simply went back to feeling misunderstood. A stranger in my own land speaking a language that nobody knew. After nine years, I had completely given up the prospect of ever getting another conventional job. You can therefore imagine my surprise when I managed to land a position with a small, exciting tech company, which was, by some miracle, 
looking for somebody with my quirky combination of skills and experience. It is not in an industry with which I am even remotely familiar. It is populated by good-natured, supremely talented people, all seemingly half my age. The company promotes working at home, so that was new to me as well. Confluence and Jira and Slack and Google Hangouts are the order of my new strange workday. The marching orders from my new boss were clear. We wouldn't have hired you if we didn't think you could keep up, so we're going to do you the courtesy of not slowing down. My words, not his, but I think that's about right. I can't thank him enough for the confidence he has placed in me. However, while I am flattered, I am not at all sure it is deserved. I am doing my best to sprint at my intellectual top speed so I can keep up with their intellectual light-sweat jog. Despite that, for the first few days, I was reduced to shell-shocked catatonic channel surfing in the evenings and was racked with imposter syndrome guilt. In a blast from my European summer, it was my next, oh crap, what have I done, moments. At first, I felt I didn't have a clue what they were all talking about. I struggled to understand what was being said. I tried to contribute where I could. I felt stupid as I asked, for what felt like the hundredth time, so that means what exactly? It then occurred to me there was one critical tool I lacked. I needed a Rosetta Stone. I began to create one based on an old glossary still kicking around my new company. It had been neglected for a while as the rest of the crew jumped into the Millennium Falcon and moved at light speed to their next project. I decided to stay back on Tatooine for a while and try and learn the native language of this strange new planet. I renamed it to get away from the musty library shelf associations of the word glossary. After all, glossary does sound like something you really should just gloss over. In a not-to-faux-hipster-wannabe style, it became the lingo. I began dumping terminology into it as quickly as I could and co-opted others to do the same and provide definitions and patient explanations. The number of entries has grown rapidly, and the pace of additions only seems to be increasing. Like the real Rosetta Stone, this new document has had an almost magical, transformative effect on me. Language that was once incomprehensible is now clear, but it goes beyond that. It's surprising the number of terms in general circulation which describe the same thing. Also, just like the languages of Europe I encountered nearly 40 years ago, there is no one absolutely correct, absolutely fixed definition for anything. It's a vernacular which evolves and flows smoothly from one subject area to the next. But that doesn't mean it cannot be closely tracked and documented along the way so that at any point in time there's a reference for how we communicate ideas to each other. It's like the Rosetta Stone of old, except that the text can be scraped off and rechiseled on a daily, even hourly basis. For me, the lingo has been the difference between understanding and not. In the long term, I think it can also help my new co-workers in understanding each other. I hope that everybody new we bring on board at least gives it a once-over. Then they can continue to return to it on a regular basis, both as a source and as a destination for information. Over time, we can converge on standard terminology and, like the real Rosetta Stone, unlock a better means of communicating with each other. Me? With my Rosetta Stone tucked under my arm and with patient help from the friendly locals and fellow travelers, well... I think I'm going to make it.
I'm Terrence C. Gannon, and I'm not there yet. Thank you so much for listening. As mentioned at the top of this episode, the Not There Yet podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. APN supports a wide variety of Alberta-based podcasts on just about every subject you can imagine. In fact, so much choice, you may have trouble getting started. So here's a personal recommendation. I just listened to episode 105 of the High Level Showdown with hosts Elliot, Sharon, and Michael. In my episode today, I talked about traveling to strange places and the discoveries and surprises along the way. In episode 105, Elliot talks about an even stranger trip. He worked the 2016 Hillary Clinton presidential campaign in Iowa. Ever wonder what it's like inside the machinery of U.S. politics? Well, I certainly did. Elliot tells an amazing, unique tale that I think you will really enjoy. Frankly, it sounds pretty horrific, but it does make for great listening, as do all of their episodes. Find the High Level Showdown, along with all of the other shows supported by the Alberta Podcast Network, at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Not There Yet is a regular series of short essays podcasted from the second decade of the 21st century. For better or worse, they are all written and read by me, and the entire production is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Canada. All rights are reserved. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show on iTunes, now called Apple Podcasts. It really helps build the audience, which means I get to keep doing this. As mentioned a moment ago, we're proud to be a member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. What makes ATB's involvement so interesting and exciting is that it's actually just one of a wide range of initiatives, which makes ATB, as I like to say, like a bank, but way better. Just one of the other programs ATB is working on, get this, the ATB Arts and Culture Branch. Can you imagine? I count amongst my friends, members of the creative community, and based on my conversations with them, they have had some real challenges with the business aspects of their work, including banking. ATB has listened and understood this need and is setting up the ATB arts and culture branches in Edmonton and Calgary very soon for just these types of people. I'm encouraging my friends in the arts community to check them out, and if you're a creative, I would encourage you to do the same. I know, not something you'd expect from a bank, but that's what makes ATB different and better. Check them out at atb.com slash listens. Thank you again for listening, and I'll be back soon with another episode. Subscribe to the Not There Yet podcast on your favorite podcast platform to know exactly when. Until then, remember, it really is the journey, not the destination. It really doesn't matter if you're not there yet. Thank you.